But, uh, you know, over and over in our, our study of the, the book of Revelation, and we've been here for quite a period of time now. You can see at the top of your study sheet this morning, this is now the 79th message that we've had, and we're a little better than halfway through the book. But one of the things that we've been able to, to see as we've made our way through this, this study of the book of Revelation is that as John is laying all these things out that are going to be taking place in what we know will be the last days, it has just been incredible as we see all of the details of all of these things that he says are going to happen. And here we are sitting in 1999, and we're able to look around at what's going on right now in history. And it really, it is just an amazing thing because it becomes very, very obvious that the stage in this world right now is most definitely being set for the fulfillment of these events that we're seeing unfold here through John's revelation. And when we came to chapter 13, John surfaces another one of those, those proofs that we are in fact living in the last days because Revelation chapter 13 prophesies the, the coming of a, a leader who is going to emerge on this planet who for the very first time in human history is going to literally rule the entire world. Now, that's what Revelation chapter 13, in a nutshell, at least the first ten verses, that's what this thing is about. A, a leader that we would refer to as the Antichrist biblically, who will come to this planet and will be the first one in human history who will literally rule the entire world. And I want you to listen very carefully to this. We've got about 6,000 years of, of human history under our belt right now. And if you, just, if you just begin to step back from that thing and you begin to view history, if you will, through the pages of the Word of God, and, and I would like to remind you that the letter written to the, the church in the Laodicean church period, the, the period of time that we're presently living in, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, one of the things that it tells this generation of people to do is to anoint your eyes with, uh, with eye salve that you may see, because one of the things that he says is characteristic of this period of time that we're living in is that we think we see really well, and God says that, Really, it's not that we don't see very well. Our problem is that we are we're blind. And so he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And, and if you begin to take history and, and you, you allow the Word of God to begin to anoint your eyes so that you may see it, what becomes just absolutely abundantly clear is that history is really nothing more than God moving to put his son on a throne in Jerusalem where he will rule the entire world. But that's just half of what history actually is. There's a whole other half of the thing. The other half of it is that Satan is busy while the, God's moving all through history to get his son on that throne where he can rule and reign over the entire earth. Satan is busily doing everything within his power, not only to keep him from sitting on that throne, but to what? Somebody tell me. Raise your hand. Counterfeit, but he's wanting to do something more than just keep him from sitting on that throne. He wants to what? 
Have you to have? Marge? I'm sorry? Good, good read. He wants to sit on that throne and don't, listen, don't write out of the equation as you begin to anoint your eyes and you begin to look at this thing unfold that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what does he do? He comes into that newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, into the Holy of Holies, and he takes a seat. And where is it, y'all? It's on that throne. And you see, all of history is nothing more than God moving to put his son on that throne and Satan moving to get himself on that throne. And listen, once you get dialed into that as the big picture and the overarching thing that's going on all around you, you know what? All of a sudden, history starts making all kind of incredible sense because then you begin to see why it is that Satan has consistently, all down through history, he has consistently sought to have an earthly king or an earthly ruler that he was using as, as nothing more than a pawn to try to get world domination. And listen, you can, just, you can just go back and you can just walk down through the corridors of history and you can begin to see this thing. I mean, you, you go back as far as Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 11, and 2,400 years before the birth of Christ, what you find is that there was a man who was the 13th from Adam, a man by the name of, what's his name? Nimrod, whose name means rebellion. And what you find is that this king was seeking to set up his own kingdom on this earth in rebellion against God. And what you find out is the plan that he was going to use to try to take that world domination, he was going to take world domination by uniting this world governmentally, politically, commercially, and religiously. And if you've been here for the last four lessons that we've had from Revelation chapter 13 as we've been seeking to, to build a biblical composite of, of the Antichrist, you know that Nimrod, this one that we're talking about in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Nimrod was really just a, a preview of the one that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 13. And I mean, you can go back to Genesis chapter 11, and it's all there, folks. I mean, right down to the very system of religion that Nimrod used in the Tower of Babel. Listen, that system of religion is going to be the same exact system of religion that the Antichrist is going to use to pull this world together religiously in the next several years. It happens to be the system of religion that this morning in 1999... Right now, while we're presently living and breathing in this room, that same exact system of religion boasts of one billion followers on this planet. One out of six people have already embraced this same Nimrod system of religion, which will be the religion of the Antichrist when he comes on the scene. And then after Nimrod, again, you can just walk down through history and see who Satan was using as a pawn. After Nimrod, there would have been Sennacherib, and, and you would have had Nebuchadnezzar, and Cyrus, and Alexander the Great, and uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, and, and we, could, we could go on. We could talk about those in, 
in more recent history, like Napoleon, or even one in the last half century, Hitler, right? But the thing you, you got to get in your mind on this thing is as powerful as any of these rulers that I just mentioned have, were, ever were, and, and as, as powerful and as far-reaching as, as their kingdom may have ever been, one thing that none of these men was ever able to actually do is control the entire world. Now, I, I, some of those guys would have, would have conquered uh, parts of Europe and, and parts of uh, northern Africa, parts of, of western uh, Asia, but none of them ever controlled those three continents that make up the Middle East, Africa and Asia and, and Europe. None of them ever touched that, not, I mean, not to mention anything in the western hemisphere, like the North America that we live in or South America. And the point I want you to see this morning as we're getting started here is that it hasn't been until this generation that the world has been at a place where there could actually come a world leader and actually take world domination and pull this world together in some kind of a, a one-world government and one-world religion and one-world economy. To this point, y'all, it couldn't have happened. You see, first of all, if, if somebody was going to come on this planet and was going to actually be able to dominate the world, several things would have to be in place. First of all, something would have to create the need for there to be a one-world government with a one-world ruler. And folks, and until this century, that need has never actually presented itself. But in this century... The need came along, didn't it? Because now we have nuclear weapons and thus the formation of the United Nations. You know why the United Nations is in existence? It's because man has now learned that he can blow himself to kingdom come. And the world stopped, looked at that thing and said, listen, we, we risk annihilation on this planet unless we can begin to pull this world together governmentally. Now, folks, you see what I'm talking about? History beginning to, to come a little bit clearer when you begin to see what's really going on on this planet? Listen, that's, that fits uh, into the whole scheme of everything that God is needing to pull together in these last days. But not only did we have a need for there to be a world government, but something else had to be in place in order for somebody to actually come and take world domination. And what that is, is that somehow, whoever this world leader would be, he would somehow have to be able to have rapid communication anywhere in the world. And, and again, folks, listen, for the first time in human history, that's now in place. And this morning, right now, we could connect the phone right up top there, and we could call halfway around the world to Manila, and we could talk to Sparky and Rita and Sam and Lori this morning, our missionaries over there, and we, we, could, we could hang up with them, and we could call over in Belarus and talk to Mark Rose about the, 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 the Volga River campaign. And, we could, we, and if we wanted to, 
we could even connect video conferencing where we could actually put them up on the screen and just talk to them right there, right at this very second, halfway around the world. And you see, in order for there to be a world dictator, you would have to have that kind of rapid communication with the entire planet. But not only would he need rapid communication, he'd also need rapid transportation. And you see, we understand that now. And the fact is, it hasn't been until recently that this could have even happened. But to control the world, a world leader would have to be able to transport himself anywhere on this planet in an extremely short period of time. And not only himself, he would also have to, uh, to be able to mobilize or deploy troops and, and weapons into any part of the world in a short period of time. And folks, listen, today... You could do that, and you could have troops and weapons anywhere on this planet in less than 24 hours. But not only would he need rapid communication and rapid transportation, he would also need to be able to threaten any people on this planet or any nation on this planet at a moment's notice to be able to keep them under his control. And do you realize that right now, missiles could be fired anywhere on this planet and could reach their target in less than 30 minutes. And, and again, you begin to look at all of this stuff and you begin to say, is all of this just happening? And are all of these advances things that are just coincidentally taking place? Or is it because all of history is moving toward an event that's getting ready to take place on this planet? And folks, listen, a, a dictator with nuclear missiles at his disposal could threaten any people or any nation in the world, blackmailing them into submission through the threat of extinction. And again, in all the history of mankind, that's never even been within the realm of possibility or even human comprehension. And then there's one other thing that I'll just, just throw out to you that is just as significant as all of, the, all of these other things, in fact, may be... Uh, more significant than any of them and probably all of them combined and that is that somehow a world dictator if he was going to absolutely take control of the world he would have to have absolute and total control of the economy and what is it y'all in the last several decades that has been perfected that would allow this to take place what is it computers right and again it hasn't been until now that computer technology has been sophisticated enough to handle all the, the financial accounts of all of the businesses and of all of the individuals of the entire world. But, but check this out. Through electronic transfer of funds, right now you can buy and sell without using credit cards, without using checks, without using money in the form of, of currency. And buddy, listen, it is all set up right now for a world dictator to come in and establish a government-controlled economy where he could have total and complete control of all transactions anywhere in the world where in order to buy and sell, you would have to have special access into the computer network through a series of three six-digit numbers, 666, that would be read through the computer through a chip in your right hand or in your forehead 
so that nobody could buy or sell on this planet unless you had that. And listen, folks, this is exactly what the Bible prophesied would take place and would be in place when the Antichrist comes on the scene. And listen, I want to I say this again. In an unbelievable w way, all of the, the necessary ingredients for a world government are present on this planet right now for the very first time in human history. And folks, I, I believe it's all pointing to the fact that the Bible prophesied long before anybody could ever conceive of it or imagine that it could possibly happen that there would come a world leader who would take world domination in the last days. And so when we come into Revelation chapter 13 and, and it talks about this guy who is going to take the world by storm and be the absolute dictator of the world, do recognize that there's a lot of things that had to be in place before that could ever happen. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, may this just be a, a little wake-up call for you to get you to where you begin to step back and look at this thing and say, is all of this in fact pointing to the fact that, that we are presently living in the last times? And of course, I, I believe that we are. And in Revelation chapter 13, we've looked at this now, this, this Antichrist, this beast, for, for several weeks, what we did, first of all, is just so that we could begin to really comprehend the things that are, that are covered here, what, what we did is we just backed off from Revelation 13 for a little bit, and we just went throughout the Scripture to build a biblical composite of the Antichrist. And then last week, we actually began to, to begin to make our way into chapter 13, and that's really all that we were able to do is just begin. And this morning, to be quite honest with you, we're not going to get very far uh, as far as the verses are concerned, but I think that if you'll listen this morning, you'll come way down the road in understanding that this one that is going to come to, to counterfeit and to counter the Lord Jesus Christ. We began looking last time, Roman numeral 1, at the unique parentage of this false prince and I call him the false prince here because we're going to see, beginning in verse 11, the false prophet. But this is the Antichrist, and we began looking at the unique parentage that he has, and we talked, first of all, about his family lineage. Not every word is going to end with idge, but uh, at least we're out to shoot with him. His family lineage, John says in verse 1, that is, he stood upon the sand of the sea, he saw a beast rise up out of the sea. And we saw that in, in the world of the Bible, the, the usage of the word sea is always exclusively referring to, to what sea, y'all? The Mediterranean Sea. And we find that what God does here is he, he dials us in right from the get-go of, of the general area from which the Antichrist will arise. And, and we saw as we began to compare Scripture with Scripture that, that really... And I'm not so sure that this all crystallized in your mind last week, so, so listen real carefully. But as we began last week to compare Scripture with Scripture, what we began to find is that the Mediterranean is really a, a perfect, all-inclusive description of the nationality or the lineage of the Antichrist because we saw, first of all, that this Antichrist is a Gentile. He is a Gentile. And even more specifically, we saw from Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, he is a Roman. 
and yet not only a Roman, but according to Daniel 8 and 9, he's also a Greek, and not only a Greek, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, he's also a Babylonian, and not just a Babylonian, but according to Isaiah 10, 24, he's also a Syrian, and obviously the Scripture's letting us know that the Antichrist is going to be of a composite nationality, and as if that weren't comp composite enough, we also saw that not only is he a Gentile, but he's also a what? He's a Jew. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 and 37, says that the Antichrist, this one who will come, does not regard the God of his fathers. And we saw, again, that that phrase is a phrase that is used exclusively throughout the Bible. Anytime you find it, every time you find it, it is always in reference to the Jews. And then we were even able to, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, to identify this beast or the Antichrist as being from, from which tribe? The tribe of Dan. And we saw that the fact that, uh, that he will be from the tribe of Dan is no doubt... You probably don't want to turn your paper yet, y'all. That, that, that map's probably on there for a reason. He's probably going to get to it here in a second. But, but we saw the, the, the fact that he'll be from the tribe of Dan is no doubt one of the key reasons that as you compare Genesis 49 with Revelation chapter 7, you find that by Revelation chapter 7, Dan is written out of the will, as it were, because in Revelation chapter 7, God removes Dan from the list of the 12 tribes from which will come the 144,000. So the beast or the Antichrist is of a multinational descent, and as I mentioned, specifically related to the Mediterranean area. And I want you to see how God pulls all of this, this, this thing together. And I'll just, I'll just tell you, uh, part of the fun that I have in studying the Bible is, is just checking out how God thinks. I mean, it is just uh, an incredible thing when you begin to see the stuff that he'll throw into a passage that if you were just reading through your Bible in a year, you'd never get dialed into. But, but now watch this, and some of you won't like this, but, but, but check it out. Now you remember last week that, that I showed you that God had strategically placed the Mediterranean Sea right in the middle of three major continents of the, the Middle East, or right in the middle of the three major continents around which the whole world of the Bible centers. And now, here's a little map on your sheet. If you just turn it a little half turn, you can see I couldn't get it all in up and down. We had to put it to the side there. So if you'll just do that for a second. And you'll notice here, I, I kind of I drew it up here last week, but some of you can't visualize things too well. So I, I put it on your, on, on your study sheet this week. You can see right there the, the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the continent of Africa. And obviously this is a simplistic map. But Africa is to its south. Then you've got the continent of Europe to its north and west, and the continent of Asia to its north and east. Okay, and now, now get that, that mental picture in your mind there. Okay, and now turn your study sheet over and let me, let me make some observations with you. We could say this, that the Mediterranean Sea is connected to all three of those continents. Okay, do you see that? It's sitting right there. It's connected to all three of those, those continents that we talked about that make up the Middle East. 
Africa, Europe, and Asia. And it would appear that the Antichrist, who rises up out of the sea, the Mediterranean, will likewise be connected to those three continents. Okay? He rises up out of the sea. He's going to be connected to those three continents, just as is the Mediterranean Sea. And I think it's worth noting that in verse 2 here of Revelation 13, look at it, John says that this beast, the Antichrist, is a leopard. Now, we're going to go into detail on, on this whole animal thing n next week, but, but I want you to get this. He says that he's like a leopard. Okay, now he has the feet of a bear. He has the mouth of a lion, and he, he'll be empowered by the dragon. But now, now get it, the beast itself, his, his body, his face, his neck, his chest, his back, his stomach, his, his legs, all of that, his body is that of a leopard. A leopard. And again, now some of you are going to probably think that this is a little bit of a stretch, and, and if, the, if your mind won't let you go here, that's cool. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is, I'm just telling you, incredible to see how God thinks. I think you'll have to at least give me that it is highly coincidental, and right fast, it is highly coincidental that a leopard is a yellowish-brown color, like an Asian. A leopard has a stomach that is white, like a European, and he has spots all over it that are, that are black, like an African. And it would appear, from everything that we've seen as we've cross-referenced this thing through the Bible and from what John is describing here, that just like the Mediterranean is connected to all three continents that represent all three races on this planet, it would appear that the family lineage of the Antichrist is likewise connected to all three continents of the Mediterranean and that the Antichrist is one composite man who is put together to represent all three races all three races that just coincidentally enough happen to be perfectly depicted in a leopard. Now, is that just freaking you out? I'm just telling you, it is just highly coincidental, isn't it? And I think there's even more on this thing in God's mind than just that, because I want you to think about this. The animal to which God chooses to liken this one who is the incarnation of Satan on this earth is a leopard. Okay, now just lay that in your mind next to the fact that the animal to which God chose to liken his own incarnation on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ was in what kind of animal, y'all? A lamb. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And you see, John understood that the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Lamb that God himself sacrificed in Genesis chapter 3 to make coats of skins for Adam and Eve after they had rebelled and after they had sinned against him. And John understood 
that the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12. And John looked at him and he understood that he was the fulfillment of the lamb to the slaughter of Isaiah chapter 53. So yeah, he's, he's a lamb. And yet you've got to love it because you come over there after seeing all of that and here comes Peter. And, and God uses Peter so, so that we wouldn't miss the contrast of this thing. And Peter comes along in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. And what kind of lamb did Peter say that the Lord Jesus Christ was? He says he was a lamb that was without blemish and without, and without spot. And just in case you don't already know this, any time in this book that you ever find anything that has a spot on it, it's always in reference to something that is evil. It's always in a bad context. It always casts a negative light. So you know how this thing shakes down biblically? Check this out, Bill. The Christ of God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is seen in the Bible as an animal that is pure, right, white, and doesn't have any spots on him at all. In contrast to the Christ of Satan, the Antichrist, and as you might can imagine, he is seen as an animal that has spots all over him. So we could say it this way. Satan has his spotted leopard. God has his, what? Spotless lamb. I'm telling you. Either I can read a lot of stuff into the scripture, or this is a real cool book. I think it's just a real cool book. And, and for time's sake, I'll spare you the commentary on this, but, but for those of you that know and believe that this whole book fits together and that this whole book is actually the mind of Christ according to 1 Corinthians 2.16, you get all that in your head and you just got to love the question that God used Jeremiah to surface in Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23 where he says, can the Ethiopian... The African, the Hamite, like Nimrod, a preview of the Antichrist, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the, the leopard his spots? And again, you just see the consistency of, of the Bible and you just begin to see the way God thinks through the words that God uses and, and the, the way that he chooses to use those words an incredible God with an incredible book. So the Antichrist arises out of the sea, the Mediterranean. He's connected to Asia, to Europe, to Africa, as pictured in a leopard. He's of composite nationality. He's of composite race. And like I mentioned, we're going to see more about this thing of, of him being like verse 2 describes, like a leopard, a bear, and a lion next week. But I want you to see something else about the family lineage of the Antichrist that's very, very key to, to your understanding how this whole passage fits together. And this is number three on your outline under his family lineage. And that is, he's not only a Gentile, he's not only a Jew, but number three, he is both a real and a representative person. And now listen, unless you see that, you're going to have a hard time making all of the stuff in this passage jibe. 
Now, once you understand that this beast is both a real and a representative person, then, man, it just, it's, it's all just as clear as a bell. Now, I, I, I got to tell you that if you don't listen real intently for the next few minutes, you're probably not going to be able to pull this thing together. You're going to have to work with me, okay? Now, it's weird. When I, when I preface something like this, most people come afterwards and go, that wasn't hard at all. You know, the, the stuff that I think is cakewalk, everybody said, I didn't, I didn't understand a word you were saying this morning. But I'll I just tell you, now, this, if you're going to really see how the, the Scripture unfolds with this thing, there's some key things that you've you got to understand. This Antichrist is both a real person and a representative person. And by that I mean he is both a king and a kingdom. He is both a emperor and an empire. And I think it will be easier for you to actually understand this thing as we'll see it here in Revelation 13 if you understand a couple of things that God has established as patterns in the Word of God before you ever even think about getting to Revelation chapter 13. You see, what I'm wanting you to see here is that all through the Scripture, God's been developing a pattern. And one of the important things for you to ever get to the place in your Bible study that you understand is that God is a patterned God. God's an orderly God. And God works His Word through through patterns that we're able to, to go in and, and, and recognize. And one of these things that you need to recognize, one of these patterns that you need to make sure that you've got in your thinking, is that when God refers to beasts in the Bible, in terms of prophecy, they are always representative of kings and kingdoms. When God refers to beasts in the Bible in terms of prophecy... They are always representative of kings and kingdoms. And I want to show you this. Turn back with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 7. Now, we'll be referring to Daniel chapter 7 quite a bit in the next couple of weeks. And the reason for that is because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision of the same exact beast that John was seeing in Revelation chapter 13. Okay, now, now in Daniel's prophecy, he actually saw four beasts in his vision. And the fourth beast that he saw is actually the same beast that John is describing in Revelation chapter 13. And you can see that here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. Daniel says, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And obviously, this is the same beast that John saw in Revelation chapter 13 having ten horns, a beast different than any other beast. But I want you to see here how God uses beasts in the Bible to refer to both kings and kingdoms. Look down in verse 17, right here in Daniel 7. 
And again, Daniel has seen in his vision four beasts, and God tells him in verse 17, these great beasts, which are four, are four, what? Kings, which shall arise out of the earth. So the four beasts are four kings. And now drop down to verse 23. Then he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. Okay? The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. So do you see that? They're kings and, and kingdom, and it fits a biblical pattern. Beasts in the Bible, when you're dealing with prophecy, refer to kings and kingdoms. So if you'll come into Revelation 13 understanding that God has established that pattern already, it'll help you to understand what's shaken down, okay? But there's another pattern in Scripture that's very closely related to this that you also need to understand, and that is that many times in the Bible you find that God will refer to a kingdom by referring to a king, and the opposite is also true. He'll refer to a king by referring to a kingdom. And, and you know what? If, if, if you just listen to this, this will really simplify it for you. In, in other words, God talks like we talk. Because we do the same thing, don't we? In one sentence, we'll talk about the, the great war that, that ended, you know, back in the 40s there. That war that we had against Hitler. Right? And then in the very, I mean, the next sentence, we're going to talk about how we fought with Germany. And without even thinking, what we do is we refer to the man who is the, the head of a nation, a king or an emperor, and we make him synonymous with the kingdom or the empire. When you talk about Hitler, you're talking about Germany. When you're talking about Germany, you're talking about Hitler. And, and, and we all understand that. And again, God does the same thing. And the classic example of this, of course, would be in Ezekiel's prophecy. It's the, the book just preceding the book of Daniel, where you are right now. And I want you to see this in Ezekiel 27 and 28. <clears throat> now, in, in Ezekiel 27, I want you to look at, at, at verse 3. God tells Ezekiel here, and say unto Tyrus, okay, so he, he's, he's talking to this, this kingdom that would be referred to as Tyrus, this nation or, or whatever. He says, O thou that art situate at the entry of the sea, which art a merchant of the people for many isles, thus saith the Lord God, O Tyrus, thou hast said, I am of perfect Beauties. So now just file in your head who he's talking to here. He's talking to Tyrus, a kingdom, right? Well, drop down to the very next chapter. In the very same context now, and, and look, look at verse 12. God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom. And watch this phrase now. Perfect in beauty. It's exactly what he was saying to Tyrus back over there in chapter 27. And, and you see, now he's addressing the king of, of Tyrus. 
And what you find here is that he uses Tyrus, the kingdom, and the king of Tyrus synonymously. And, and then, again, in the same context, look, look down in verse 14 and watch what he does here. Now he begins to address not, not the kingdom or, or the king, but now what he does is he begins to address the power that was worked behind the king and the kingdom. And what power is that, y'all? Satan himself. And he says in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Listen, that was not the earthly king of Tyrus. It was the power that was working through that king, that power that was working through that kingdom. And then drop down to verse 17. He says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. And it's the same thing we saw in verse 12. It's the same thing we saw back in chapter 27 and verse 3 where he was talking to Tyrus and then the king of Tyrus and now says the same thing to the power that was working behind him. And he, uh, we won't take the time to turn there, but you know what? You got the same exact thing back in the book of Isaiah chapter 14 where on one hand he refers to the king of Babylon. On the other hand, he refers to Babylon and then right in the middle of all of it, he refers to Lucifer. And again, Lucifer would have been the power that have been, would have been working behind that king of Babylon that would have been working behind that kingdom of Babylon. And what you find is that God uses those, those terms synonymously in the same passage. Okay, now, is that clear? I mean, is that, nobody's freaking out or, okay? If you got that, that's exactly what you've got going on in Revelation chapter 13. The beast will be a real, literal person who will set himself up as the king over all of the earth. He is going to be, as verse 2 of Revelation 13 says, he will be empowered by the dragon or, or Satan, just as was the king of Tyrus, just as was the king of, of Babylon, as we saw in the past. But even though he's a real person, the beast is also... A kingdom. And, and, and look again at, at verse 1. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, now have you ever seen a human being that has seven heads and ten horns? Obviously not. And so that you know that no, he's not talking about a real person right now he, he's something's up here he says this beast has seven heads and ten horns okay and, and look, look at the verse upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy now before I let the Bible explain to you just exactly what it is that John was actually seeing here let me remind you that when we when we came into chapter 12 do you remember we were introduced to a similar beast? Now, now, this goes back quite a while because we had that little two-month gaposis in there uh, where our minds kind of got lost there. But do you remember when we came into chapter 12? We saw that there was a, a beast that was presented there that is very similar to this one. And I just know that if we don't talk about this, you're going to be going back and reading chapter 12, and you're going to see what's going on there, and then you're going to come to chapter 13, you're going to see what's descriptive here, and you're going to be saying, so now why is there a difference here? And so I think it's important for us to see the contrast 
And, and I don't know the best way to tell you to do this. I want you to look it in your Bible and yet at the same time try to get this down in, in your study sheet. But, but look back at verse 3 in chapter 12. And you'll note that the beast here is a great red dragon. Okay, whereas the beast in chapter 13 and verse 2, as we've already seen, is a leopard with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And you'll note that the beast, back in chapter 12 and verse 3, has seven heads and ten horns, just like the beast in chapter 13 and verse 1 has seven heads and ten horns. But you'll notice that the beast, back in chapter 12 and verse 3, has no crowns on his ten horns, but has seven crowns on his heads. Whereas the beast in chapter 13 and verse 1 has ten crowns on his ten horns and no crowns on his seven heads, but has on his seven heads the names of blasphemy. Okay, did I go too fast for you there? You got that? Uh, hello! <laughs> I know, your mind's on overload here. I'm just trying to get you to see here. Now, now, now listen. If you don't get anything else, and you can go back and read over that later. Don't do it now. Just listen. You can tell by the contrast that these beasts are obviously very similar. These beasts are obviously connected in some way, but for some reason, they're also obviously different. And you see, once you keep both of these beasts in their context, it's, it's really not that difficult to see why they're different. Okay, now get this. The beast in Revelation chapter 12, which is Satan, and that's not even a question. I mean, you see that in, in, in verse 9. It tells you that this great red dragon is, is, is Satan. Okay, so the beast in, in Revelation 12 is Satan. The beast in Revelation 13 is the Antichrist who gets his power from Satan. And look at the end of verse 2 of chapter 13. And the dragon gave him, that is the beast, his power. Now, in chapter 12, the great red dragon is in heaven. Do you remember that? In chapter 13, he's no longer in heaven. He's come down to the earth. And he comes up out of the sea. And as we saw in the Mediterranean area, and John says here in verse 1, that he had, okay, so it's Satan over here in heaven. Now it's Satan on the earth. And John says here in verse 1 that he had seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. Okay, now I can stand up here and I can shoot my mouth off and tell you, well, now what do I think about this? Or we can let God do his own commentary and obviously God's very capable of doing that himself and do a much better job than I can. So why don't we just go over and let him do it in chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Now, 
our study is back in chapter 13. We're not going to be able to exhaust the things that we're going to see here. We're going to, one of these years, y'all, we're going to get to chapter 17. But, but look at what John says beginning in verse 7 of Revelation 17. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman, and watch this now, and of the beast that carrieth her. Now, now which beast is this? Look at it. The one which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Okay, we got the beast down. It's the same one John saw back in chapter 13 and verse 1. And now watch the explanation of this beast in verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth and there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And you see, now it's all just as clear as it can possibly be, isn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Look, look again at what he says in verse 9. The he seven heads are seven Mountains, and you'll notice in verse 10 that they're also identified as seven, what, kings. Okay, now, 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 now listen, okay, you, you remember when we were coming through chapter 12 with the seven heads of the great red dragon, I, I showed you when we went through that, I showed you how Satan, the god of this world, has sought to control this world, and he's done so all through history under seven heads or seven kings, or seven kingdoms. I mean, we, we would still refer to, to, to leaders of, of countries in that same way. We speak of heads of government, right? Okay? So all through history, Satan has based, it's come down to, he has used seven heads, or seven kings, to control this world that the Bible says he is the god of, the small g. Okay? And in all of history, until the second coming of Christ, what God showed us is that there will be seven and only seven kings or kingdoms that he will use. And we began to go through those. And we saw that there was Egypt, there was Assyria, there was Babylon, there was Persia, there was Greece, and there was Rome. Okay? There was six of them, right? Six. Okay, now watch this. The angel says in verse 10, five are fallen, okay? That's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Five, he says, are fallen, and then go on in verse 10, and one is, okay? One existed at the time that John was receiving this revelation. And what kingdom is that, y'all? You see how easy this is? Okay, it, it, it's Rome. John w was exiled to the Isle of Patmos at, at this time 
the, the time of, of, of his writing, he, the, the book of Revelation, he, he was cast to the Isle of Patmos under Domitian, the emperor of Rome. Okay, so now, now get it. Five were fallen. One existed at the time that John received the revelation. And the angel goes on in the middle of verse 10 and says, And the other is not yet come. Okay, now this one that is not yet come is the kingdom of this beast, or the Antichrist. And the angel adds at the end of verse 10, And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. In other words, it ain't going to last real long. Okay? Now, now, something you need to note here. Okay, now, now you, you, you're tracking with all this now? No, no, okay, now pull this in. Something you, you got to get in your head is that that Roman kingdom that existed in John's day, that sixth kingdom, it was a kingdom that was never actually destroyed. Now, those other five king, kingdoms and those other five kings, they were goners, man. They, they were destroyed. They were destroyed by another kingdom. Okay, and if Daniel chapter 2 prophesied this exactly, that they would be overtaken, annihilated, demolished by that other kingdom. But the sixth kingdom, or the Roman kingdom, or the Roman empire, was a kingdom that was never actually destroyed. What happened is because of its internal corruption, it simply ceased to exist as far as a, a military or a political or a governmental power was concerned. But a, a, as we, we saw when we were going back, you know, when we were going through chapter 12, it, it may not have been recognizable as, in the world as far as a military or a political or a governmental power in the last 16 or 17 centuries, we haven't been able to look at it and say, wow, just check out the Roman Empire. Because it hasn't existed militarily. It hasn't existed politically. But now listen, it didn't cease to exist. Rome simply went into a mystery form. And it's existed on this planet as a religious power that God identifies right here in Revelation chapter 17, back in verse 5. Look at it. He identifies it here as mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And now listen. When Satan, the great red dragon, comes down out of earth and he takes up residence in the beast or the Antichrist, the old Roman Empire is going to be revived. And he'll rule the world as the dictator over, over a confederacy of ten nations or ten kings or ten sovereign states. And that's what the ten crowns are upon the ten horns. And you see that in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 17. The angel tells John... And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. In other words, for a short period of time. And what the angel tells John, and he shows us here, 
is that the Antichrist, now listen, this is not hard, the Antichrist will form a federation of ten sovereign states or ten nations comprised of ten kings and those ten kings will actually be a revival of the Roman Empire that never actually died it just went into that mystery form but when he comes down as Satan buddy BAM! it's coming back to life you see and that's okay now, now go back to chapter 13 and, and think with me now don't don't drift see that's why back in chapter 13 and verse 1 John said that this beast has seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and hopefully now you can see why I've made such a to-do about him being both a real and a representative person or both a, a king and a kingdom verse 1 says he has seven heads and we talked about those and look down at verse 3 John says and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed okay now now listen very very carefully this is going to tell whether or not you got it is verse 3 talking about the real person or the representative person and the answer is what if you said yes if that's what you were thinking in your mind you got it because it's both now, now, now listen the old Roman Empire as one of those heads was as it were wounded to death but that deadly wound was healed and it's going to be healed in the tribulation period Satan comes down and he's going to revive that old Roman Empire it's gonna come back up it's gonna come back to life and yet as we're gonna see and we're gonna cover in great detail the Antichrist himself three and a half years into the tribulation period is literally going to receive a wound to the head and he will lie as it were dead in the street and just at that moment, as Satan is cast down out of heaven, in, uh, as it talks about in, in chapter 12, because he's spanked by Michael the archangel, and he comes down to the earth, and at that time what he is going to do is he is going to literally take up residence in the Antichrist, and for three and a half years he will be Satan incarnate on this planet to mimic the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ ministered on this planet as God incarnate for three and a half years. So the answer is yes. He's a real person. He's really going to get a head wound. And Satan at that time will empower him. And yet one of his heads was that Roman Empire, which was as it were wounded to death. And it's going to be revived under that federation of those ten states that the Antichrist is going to pull together that he's going to use to control the entire planet. Now, you got that? You know what? I love you all. Thank you so much for working with me today because I know, at least in my opinion,
this was the toughest ground that we've covered since we started the book of Revelation. Would you agree with that? <laughs> well, I, and, and now listen. If for some reason you stayed up too late last night or whatever and you just could not bring your mind in, get the tape or go to bed earlier next week and what we're going to do is, is, is we're just going to begin to see how this thing unfolds. But, but can you, uh, now listen to me, can you see that if you don't understand that he's a real and a representative person, you'd never understand what in the world is being said here in Revelation chapter 13 to try to make that thing all fit. And you see, that's why I, I, I didn't want to make that point and make you have to believe something because I told you. That's why we went back in the scripture this morning. And I showed you all of these places where God has already led you through the, the, the patterns that he's established so that you could be able to come to Revelation chapter 13 and make heads or tails out of this thing. No pun intended. <clears throat> okay, now, now listen. Where we began th this morning is talking about the fact that this has been prophesied for the last 2,000 years. 2,000 years ago, somebody coming to this planet and taking world domination as we, we talked about. Those people didn't understand how impossible that would have been just from a practical standpoint like we would now. But now we can see from a very practical standpoint Everything has shaken down the way that it has to fulfill this prophecy. And for the first time in 6,000 years of human history, right now, these prophecies could be fulfilled. And I believe that the reason they could be fulfilled is because they will be fulfilled in the very, very near future. You know, two weeks ago, I was with a discipleship team from our church in Toledo, and the, the folks wanted to uh, spend some time with us and be gracious to us while we were there. And they, they took us up to uh, Dearborn, Michigan, to the Henry Ford Museum. And, and it was just an incredible, incredible thing as you're just looking through all of these inventions that have taken place in the last hundred years or so. And you know what? I just got to tell you, I'm looking at all of this stuff going, this isn't, this isn't just so life could be a little more convenient. There's a plan that's unfolding. And you look at the, the technology and everything that's taken place in the last hundred years, folks, and it's all pointing to everything that we're seeing right here. And if, if I knew how to do it, some of you folks that are here today that have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if I knew how to do it, man, I would, I would find a way to plead with you for your soul. I, I'd beg you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ while you still had the time. But you know what? It wouldn't work, number one. And that's really not my job. What God told me is preach this book. And what he said he'd do is by his spirit, he'd take it if we'd be faithful to it 
and he would convince you and reprove you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. I've tried to do my job today, and some of you know that God has done his job today. Because right now, there's people in this room that you know you're a sinner. You know that God is righteous, and you're separated from him, which causes you to face judgment in the future. And you're very aware of that this morning. And if God is speaking to you, and if God's done that in your heart today to reveal to you your need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and Him alone, apart from this church, or apart from anything that this church might do in throwing water on you, or dunking you in water, or offering anything to you through a cup, or through a wafer, or anything like that, if God has shown you your need to receive Jesus Christ today, or if you have questions about what that means, as our service is concluded here this morning, our pastors are going to be up on either side. This is our invitation to you to come and to receive Jesus Christ or to talk about what that even means. And if God is speaking to you today, we would love the opportunity of, uh, of talking with you. And Lord, I, I do thank you so much for this, this group of people. I really just, you know, I labored over this thing and, and just realizing just some of the, the technicalities in, involved in, in this passage and realizing that we live in a, in a culture that has caused our attention span to be so weak and so it's very difficult for us to, to come into a... a a meeting like this and listen to the proclamation of the Word of God and actually be able to to hang with it and to follow it and I, I just I praise you for a place that that is sought to allow that to be a reality. And Lord our desire is to uphold you through upholding the book that you gave to us that reveals to us who you are and what your will and your plan is for us and for this earth and for the entire universe. And so, Lord, would you continue to take this book and, and teach us. You told us that if we would read it back in chapter 1, that we would be blessed. And we believe as a church we've been blessed even because of our study of this incredible, incredible book. And we thank you for that. But Lord, today, would you, would you take all that we've been able to see in the Word of God as you perfectly unfold your truth, would you take it today to speak to the heart of, of people that are in this room that don't know you as, the, as their Savior today. And we pray that this would be the day of their salvation. And we ask these things for your glory's sake. Amen.